Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking to Michael Copperman about his book, Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm wondering if we can start the interview by having you... Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Michael Copperman about his book, Teacher, Two Years in the Mississippi Delta. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm wondering if we can start the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. I, I grew up a family doctor's kid in a sleepy provincial little college town called uh, Eugene, Oregon. Some of your listeners might be familiar with it because it's the home of the University of Oregon um, and the, the ducks. <laughs> um, and uh, I was mostly an athlete in high school. Um, I was a wrestler. Uh, that took me to Stanford on, um, on partial athletic scholarship. Um, and after I graduated from Stanford, um, I joined the organization Teach for America, um, which sent me to the uh, robot public schools in the Mississippi Delta as part of, uh, as part of you know, their program to recruit recent college graduates and place them in under-resourced schools. Um, <clears throat> after Teach for America, I came back to the University of Oregon, um, finished their MFA, and uh, have been teaching for the last, this is my 11th year, I guess, teaching um, three classes a quarter, two low-income, first-generation, at-risk students of diverse background. Um, so I work sort of in a mix of diversity retention and, and or like English composition. Ten years have passed since your experience working with Teach for America. What what inspired you to write this book now? Well, I th- I think that I really needed the clarifying um, weight of those years to reflect on what had happened to me in Mississippi. Um, the experiences themselves were uh, were vivid and difficult and traumatic, and in some ways, I think also um, tremendously formative for me. I, I think sometimes I say that Mississippi was the crucible that made me um, and made me into an educator. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily sort of an easy <laughs> or entirely benign process because I went, you know, straight from literally straight from, you know, Stanford, the sort of bastion of West Coast privilege to a place, you know, that I think for most Americans is fairly out of sight, out of mind that is the poorest and blackest part of the poorest and blackest state in the country. Um, and so I think, you know, I, th- I think that the experience overall was, was complicated. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of assuming here that you didn't anticipate how complicated it would be before you embarked on that journey. So could you talk a little bit about what your life was like then as a college senior, what attracted you to teach for America and what did you expect your teaching experience might be like? 
Well, so, you know, as a college senior, I was the uh, issues chair of the HAPA Issues Forum. Um, as many, you know, college students do, I got involved with issues of, of advocacy and justice and identity, but of course, very much sort of predicated on the place that I found myself. And so for a, uh, a mixed race Asian American, I think <laughs> getting, getting the ability, having the ability to check more than one box on the census, right, seemed to be um, a large enough issue to take on. But I was certainly involved and I'd taken a lot of classes on, you know, that, that attempted to address issues of poverty and privilege and race and injustice. And in particular, education and educational inequality was something that I was interested in. Um, so I was responsive to Teach for America's, you know, heady rhetoric that one day all children, um, regardless of the color of their skin or how much privilege they're born into, will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. Um, I very much believed, uh, like much of my generation, I think, that, you know, um, the sky was the limit in terms of my own potential and that basically the the realization of my own uh, infinite ability was no further than me figuring out exactly what it was I wanted to do. So I wanted, you know, simply to remake the world into a more just place by helping children who had not had a great deal of opportunity. Um, and so I was sent to, you know, to rural Mississippi. I think my, my expectations, um, were high, and I think that I had very little idea of what it actually means to teach in, in some of the nation's most under-resourced schools. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I was certainly in for, for a rude awakening. I'm interested in learning more both about your Teach for America experience as well as what made your experience unique because you were in a rural setting as opposed to an urban setting in, in say, in Mississippi as opposed to San Francisco or Chicago or New York. Can you first tell us a little bit about, like, what is Teach for America and, and how does it work exactly? Yes, yeah, so I, for something like the last 25 years, Teach for America has been the largest employer of recent college graduates. Um, it's an exceptionally elite program that uh, places something, I think, in the sliding scale for the last, at least the last 10 years or so, something between 15 and 20,000 recent college graduates who have been extensively sort of like screened and selected into high need areas where there are staff shortages and where they believe that, you know, teachers who have sort of a demonstrated record of overcoming adversity um, will be able with some training and, and as much support as they can provide to sort of help their students achieve at much higher levels than they might otherwise. Um, and so, you know, Teach for America is very, very much responsible for a lot of the the things that we sort of see happening in the modern educational reform movement, whether that is the, um, the, the charter movement, not charter movement meaning sort of religious schools or for-profit schools, but charters that try to go into public school areas and, uh, and serve that same population of students with the idea of creating sort of a school culture of achievement. Um, the KIPP schools in particular are one very Teach for America sort of outgrowth that, that is a direct line of lineage. We see uh, Teach for America alumni now in a lot of positions of leadership 
but often sometimes in somewhat complex circumstances. Um, so they've gotten themselves embroiled at times in some of these issues with regards to unions um, and union protections. Um, I would argue sometimes on the wrong sides of those issues. Um, they have also, I think, put a lot of people in the classroom or committed people to issues of educational justice in ways that I think are not trivial. Um, but their idea is that they would create a movement by taking folks who would not necessarily have become educators and making them understand what conditions are like in, in the nation's um, more, more troubled and under-resourced schools. They, the, the idea is that then if people go on into positions of leadership, um, that they find themselves in positions where they can advocate for either those students or for policies which will perhaps help fight educational inequality, that those long-term impacts, um, both on the individuals and then collectively, will start to create change. Um, and I think that we see some impacts <laughs> down the line, but th that's, the, that's the mission of the organization. And of course, it's a very, very, Teacher America is a very controversial, um, very, very controversial organization. And the issues that sort of float in Teacher America's wake, of course, are, are many. Um, the organization in some ways has taken a lot of blows in the public eye, I would argue, in the last uh, five to seven years. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of, some of those criticisms are quite right regarding the organization's elitism, regarding the distance between its rhetoric and perhaps the actual results that they get in the classroom. Um, I find myself uh, extremely mixed in my feelings towards the organization, but I also have to say that I finally do support them, um, in particular because of some things that I've recently found out about their diversity numbers. So when I was in the core, I was one of you know, perhaps 10 people of color in a core of um, something like uh, 80 to 90 people. And I was just back in Mississippi about a month and a half ago um, with this book, and I went to sort of see their meeting of young teachers and was so struck just visually about what I saw that I had to ask about it. In Mississippi, the diversity of the core is something approaching 45%. Mm -hmm. um, and nearly a quarter of those are African-American uh, young teachers, and those folks were often recruited from within the state of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. um, all of those are real changes from what the organization sort of had originally done in creating their reputation as being the sort of place that takes a, a Stanford graduate, right, or graduate of Harvard or Princeton and puts them in under-resourced schools. And I found out that nationally their numbers are actually above 50%. So, you know, I think, I think it's interesting that at the same time that the organization has sort of under the blow of a lot of public criticism, lost its luster, it's now perhaps the greatest single engine in terms of taking um, young, uh, uh, young people of color of extreme merit who are college graduates and putting them into the classroom. You know, nationally, I think our diversity numbers are something like 7% of incoming teachers. I think that's right, or it's something close to that. And so I think that that single statistic <laughs> almost obviated most of my concerns. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, you know, the, the legacy of the organization is complex, I think. It sounds like you have a very nuanced view as to the, the strengths and the limitations of the program. I'm sort of curious how your views have changed over time. What, what were you thinking about Teach for America as someone who was 22 and just getting started 
versus at the end of your first or second year of this versus 10 years out doing something else? I think, well, so I mean, I, I think that the, the answer to that question is that I bought wholeheartedly into the rhetoric of achievement and the organization at the time. So I, I entered Teach for America at the time at which No Child Left Behind was first being fully launched and implemented. But before, you know, but before it was clear what I discovered even in those years in the classroom, which is that an, an emphasis on, you know, standardized tests, test taking methods, um, a mandate of complete proficiency, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, schools, which often lacked resources, being sort of uh, uh, graded as being failing schools, right? Th- that, that circumstance um, happened at a time when Teach for America very much brought into a sort of philosophy of testable outcomes. Um, you know, it, it was an attempt to be very data-driven. And so at that time, you know, what I believed when I was going to these classrooms was that I had to realize some standard of achievement or else I had failed and my children had failed. <laughs> and, you know, everything that we had done was for nothing. Um, and so I think I very much rested my sense of self-worth on mm. that goal. And I don't know that that is necessarily the organization Teach for America's fault any more than I think that we can blame Ted Kennedy or uh, W for <laughs> implementing a policy, which in retrospect looks like a pretty hideous failure. Um, but, you know, Teach for America very much sort of gave me a belief that, that, that I needed some sort of like actionable metric to demonstrate achievement and that that was what was most important. Um, not necessarily, you know, the lives of the children I encountered and their well-being, but um, something else that was going to be in some way demonstrable. And so, you know, I, I also think that I was naive and that my expectations were immensely high for myself and, of course, for the kids I encountered, um, who I cared about a great deal, um, but, you know, perhaps asked the wrong things of. So I, I have a pretty complex relationship to the organization. Um, I should say, I, you know, I, I do support the mission because I find their mission to be utterly just. Um, it is true that the amount of resources that you're born into are likely to dictate your educational achievement. Um, that America is not, in fact, a meritocracy, um, but a place where, you know, a, uh, let's see, a high-achieving eighth grader is less likely to finish college if they're low income than a wealthy child who, despite all of the supportive circumstances, um, tests extremely poorly. In other words, you are better off being um, rich and slow than you are being exceptionally bright and poor. And so, you know, when you look at that, you can't really say that the educational system is is successful. Um, And so I, I believe that we need to address that. I've continued to work um, to sort of fight those statistics at the college level with retention um, <clears throat> for the last decade plus. And in as much as Teacher America pointed me in that direction and made me into an educator, I think I'm really thankful. Um, I do think the organization itself, in some ways, has had to has had to really respond to what criticisms have been often levied by people like myself. And I do think that they have. They are not pitching themselves as being the answer 
to educational inequality anymore. Mm -hmm. um, they are seeing themselves as part of a network and partnership. They are seeking, you know, local support and professionals. Um, they are trying to professionalize their teachers while they're there and encourage them to go under master's programs in teaching or to get master's certifications through sort of various programs that are available to them in the areas that they're in, which are often high need. Um, and so I think that, you know, I think it's easier to support the organization today than maybe it was in 2002 when I joined. It also sounds like the work was very high stakes and it was not easy. And I can imagine that takes an emotional toll on someone who's just graduated college, who doesn't have a lot of training in teaching as well as on their students, uh, especially if students have a sense that their school's been labeled a failing school. Can you speak a little bit uh, to what, it, what you think it felt like for yourself and for your students at that time? Well, I mean, I think that I think that I <laughs> I think that the stakes were high, but I think that the stakes were not necessarily um, they weren't necessarily present in exactly the ways that I defined them at the time. Um, so, you know, the, the truth is that you know education is the institution that we charge with realizing the American dream, right? And really, the only semi-functional institution. Um, and yet, right, um, we allow this system of sort of savage inequality to persist where, you know, in, in a place like Mississippi, um, in, a, in the school that I taught in, there would be 550 African-American students um, and probably something like 530 of them would qualify for free lunch. Um, white students went to private white academies, which were established in the years immediately following uh, the 71 decision by the Supreme Court that said that you actually have to enforce Brown v. Board. And the schools today, I just returned, are, are still segregated in the community that I was in and throughout much of the Mississippi Delta, um, as well as in many places in the rural South. And so, you know, when you look at a situation like that, uh, that, is, that is very, very stark, right? If you look at a community which is 80% black, in which whites own 95% of the land and small businesses in the area, um, then, you know, you find it sort of, it's pretty easy to see that, that school matters and that you want children to be able to rise from the circumstances that they find themselves in because clearly the poverty that they live in has been dictated by the legacy of King Cotton and of history. And in Mississippi, you know, uh, what is basically... Um, a racist legacy and division of resources passed on through generations. So, you know, I entered that place a fast brown between, I'm, I'm uh, I should say, I'm a mixed race, Japanese, Hawaiian, Russell, Polish, secular Jew, right? So I'm, I look like everybody's other. Um, I was between the black, white binary. I was extremely idealistic. And I went there imagining that I was going to you know, preach some kind of justice to the children in some kind of dangerous minds-esque way that was in some way going to remake the world. Um, that obviously was <laughs> extremely naive. Um, and I would argue that, that the ways that things were difficult, things which I think in some ways processed as failures, I was responsible and culpable for, um, and they were, they were real failures, right. With real stakes. 
But at the same time, I think that I was charging myself within a single year in the classroom, somehow leading children to such heights of educational achievement that their presence in the same school system that they already found themselves in was going to you know, be reversed by that one year. I and mean, I think that idea was pretty, was pretty absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, for the kids, they trusted in, in teachers. They trusted in the system. They trusted in school. They wanted, as their parents did, the very best for themselves, right, and for their own futures. Um, and so, you know, the stakes were extremely high, but I think that what I was trying to do was perhaps more than any one person really could. Is that a realization that you had while you were still teaching, or is that something that you kind of figured out later on in adulthood? It, it's definitely taken a lot of years to clarify what that was. Um, you know, I, I carried the, the kids and their stories um, with me, I think, for many of these years. And the work that I do today is, in many ways, directly linked to those years that I spent in Mississippi. Um, at the time, when I left, at least my second year, you know, I had, on paper, realized the, the uh, realized whether it was somewhat falsified or not in terms of the numbers, whatever this level of significant gains was that I had been trying to reach. Um, and I think I felt even then, I knew somehow innately that the ways that I felt about that experience or the ways that I cared about those kids were not really present in these numbers that somehow validated mm. the year that we put into the classroom or, or what it meant to have, you know, a kid finish reading their first chapter book and go back for another chapter book and another one and gain a bunch of levels in reading, right? Or to have a kid be excited about math or science or write their biography of a famous African-American and be, you know, so excited that Oprah was from Mississippi. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I think that, you know, I think that the meaning of it has sort of stretched through time and carried me through these years. And that I've had to sort of revise my relationship with both what it was that that meant to be a teacher, to be in the classroom, and also, you know, what it means today when I, as I did today, you know, and just finished doing, face a, a classroom full of, you know, students who in many ways remind me of those kids in Mississippi who are still really likely to drop out of the institution in which I teach for a whole variety of reasons. Um, you know, what is it that I am trying to to do in that classroom and what does it mean and how much is really possible, right? Because teaching someone well or having them learn to find their voice and express themselves clearly uh, to, you know, to use clear, strong logic and making an argument, that's a, a really great thing that you give someone, your belief in them maybe, right? Your guidance and your and and criticism and your time. Um, But, you know, there are never guarantees. And I think that that sort of education's great bind is that I think many educators have to learn to do what they can. I'm wondering if there were um, some anecdotes from your memoir that that you'd like to share today. You can speak to how they've influenced you in the time since then. I think that the one that is freshest in my mind... (laughs) Um, is in fact uh, partly within the book and partly not within the book. Um, and that is the, the story of a young woman who in the book I call Serenity Borner, um, who came from a very, very difficult uh, household at the time that I was teaching her. 
essay in the book that her poverty made the other children's poverty look positively first world. Um, you know, the water was often turned off in her house. The garbage was piled in the front yard. Um, her mother was having some issues with some combination of, of um, you know, addiction and, and other things that were sort of preventing her from really taking care of the young woman who was in the fourth grade then and her brother. And the other children sort of relentlessly mocked her for being poor, which is, if you can see the region that I'm speaking of, pretty ridiculous. <laughs> um, but she, you know, she really appreciated the time and attention that I gave her. She liked reading books. She entered nearly at grade level, which is a pretty exceptional achievement given how far behind children often entered um, the classroom. And I would simply let her read books uh, anytime that she finished her work every single day. Um, and so, you know, she would ensconce herself behind beanbag chairs and arrive at the school when I did before 7 a.m., read for an hour, finish her work, and read her book. And she had read all the way through a third or fourth Harry Potter book, I think, <laughs> um, by the time that, you know, she left my classroom. Um, she wanted to be, you know, carried off into another life where children had answers and magic spells and could defeat the circumstances that were in front of them. Um, and, you know, she mostly watched her brother all day, every day, stayed with me often until six or seven o'clock in the evening when I would drive her home and go inside an empty house where, you know, there wasn't necessarily water to drink or do the dishes. Um, and there was no one really to watch after her. So, you know, she was in difficult circumstances. I had in being asked to talk about this experience in years following often sort of described her as being a success story. Um, you know, she entered my classroom reading at a fourth grade level and left reading at a, you know, at a high, high school level, right? Um, as if somehow that was what it was that you could manage with excellent instruction. When in fact, really, it was almost all her desiring, you know, to find her way into another reality. And so, you know, I went back to Mississippi after six years away initially um, and, you know, drove the, the black side of town. The, the train tracks still divide the town that I taught in um, and came on the burned out shell of her house and realized that I had reduced her to an anecdote um, and that in real life I didn't know what had become of Serenity Warner. Um, and, you know, I find out later that she had survived the fire, that she had been placed in foster care. Later, I was astounded to hear from her um, through social media, actually on, on MySpace, that um, her grandparents had adopted her and uh, on the side that she had not had that much contact with, that she was happy and felt loved, that she still loved to read, that she was doing well in school. Um, and then I lost touch with her. Um, MySpace account sort of went inactive and then MySpace rebooted itself and like got rid of all your contacts. Mm -hmm. And my attempts to find her on Facebook where I was in contact with many of the other kids that I had taught um, didn't work. I couldn't find her. And so I wasn't sure what had happened to her after her junior year of high school, whether or not she even finished high school, what had happened after. Um, when I returned to Mississippi with this book recently, um, I met with a couple of my former students um, some of whom had also graduated four-year institutions, and found out from one of them what her name was on Facebook. 
and found her. And she invited me to the campus of her, her four-year institution, where I sat down with her for an hour and talked with her about that year in the classroom and what she was doing now and where she was headed. Um, she is about to finish college. Um, she's applying to master's programs in social work. She wants to go help people who didn't have much given to them and had more responsibility, as she says, as anybody knows how to bear. Um, and talking to her, it was really interesting to me. She was so bright and self-contained and um, grown up <laughs> and curious still about the world and driven. And she said that she couldn't get back to the young woman that she had been then, that she had had to, you know, put those experiences and that person away into a box um, because she couldn't be that person when she was going to head somewhere else, right, and get everything done that she needed to do. Um, and I didn't challenge her on that statement because it seemed to me that it was her right to uh, – define her own future in her own terms. But what I found myself thinking was that she was exactly the same as she had been back then. You know, she dreamed herself into a different life, had the will and the courage to fight her way there, you know, and followed through on that. Um, and to me, that was in some ways exactly who she managed to become. My role in that, you know, my role in that was relatively small, but she did tell me that the year in my classroom was different, that most of the other years of school for her blended together, and that somehow that year and, and the time that we had there and my attention made it distinct. The fact that I told her she was going to college made her realize she could go to college. And so I, I think in some ways, when I reflected on actually talking to her and meeting with her, I think in some ways perhaps I was too hard on, on the young man that I was in that book. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe my idea of what it was that that year of teaching meant, you know, is, is, is also perhaps not really um, true to the ways that, that the things that we do resonate out of sight, especially when the payoffs are far down the road, as they often are in education. I guess two things I'm kind of wondering about is what, what you think makes a good teacher and uh, what you see is being the purpose of schools. I, I, I certainly understand the immense and conflicting objectives that we tend to ask teachers to meet. Um, you know, we ask students to meet them too, right? But, but there are these questions, and I, and I think it's really hard to have one answer, right, to, to those sorts of questions because I, I don't think that we want to pretend like achievement um, in some ways shouldn't matter a great deal. Um, and what I mean is that, you know, I think that there's no question that it's necessary to really stress to, a, a, you know, to a child, the school is a place where, where their hard work can pay off and they can rise. And for teachers have a helping students sort of realize um, greater success is something which obviously we want. We want teachers to be effective, I think. I have to say that in my experience with teachers at all levels, um, in my m many years working sort of on the fringes of academia, but, you know, in a place where I think what I do is probably, like many community college te 
teacher is very similar to what a public school teacher does. And I'm, you know, I'm saying this as someone who's just written a book about teaching in public schools and then teaching at this public institution um, that I've been at for the last uh, 10 or 11 years. Um, I, I think that, I think that the meaning of education has been reduced in some ways by our focus on effectiveness. And I don't mean that we should not be effective. I think that most educators at all levels I've encountered understand that they want to be effective, want their students to achieve as best they possibly can. Um, it's my own personal experience, and because I teach a unit on education, the reflection of, of 10 years of students who rose from low-income, diverse backgrounds reflecting on, on the schools that they've gone to and the teachers that they've had, that, in fact, the intangibles really do often matter more than, um, than some sort of metric of success or some sort of testable outcome. Most of my students who made it to college, um, despite considerable odds, had one or two teachers who they connected with who inspired them. And while it, those teachers were undoubtedly effective and excellent educators who strived to have their children do as well as they could, they also cared about those kids and invested time and energy in connecting with them, in trying to understand them, in differentiating their instruction to those particular students um, in, in ways that I think are really not measurable on some sort of you know, sheet of paper. Um, and so I think perhaps I, I tend towards the fuzzier side of this equation in terms of my net experience, even though if you were to talk to the classrooms of students that I just addressed today, you would hear that I was, you know, uh, hard and mean and rigorous and expecting more of them they could possibly meet. And so I think that you have to do those two things at once. You know, I will give a, a sort of rough lesson on what it is that they've just done as they've gotten it back. And then I'm going to meet with every single one of those students for 15 minutes in a paper conference. And I'm going to ask them first how they're doing in class and what it's like being here on campus and how they're doing with their families and take those couple minutes. And then I'm going to spend the attention looking through their prose and their argumentation and tailoring what I say directly to them in as actionable and clear of a way as I can while also validating whatever successes and strengths I see there. Um, and so, you know, I think that we need that balance. And I, I think that in some ways what makes an excellent teacher probably is in some ways their capacity for empathy and compassion, not alone, right? But in addition to the other things that I think um, we often try to teach in teachers' programs. I don't know that you can necessarily teach those things, but I think that most educators probably understand exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and I think that those things are probably undervalued, um, certainly not talked about enough in at least most, most settings that I find um, when we talk about education. So, you know, I, I, think, I think that that's a complex problem or question. Um, I, I do think in defense of teachers that perhaps we ask them like we ask our public education system to do too much, um, you know, to, to undo the barriers that children face to success in terms of their background and home support and the resources they received before they ever hit school 
and school, you know, itself and the barriers they face at the institution. And, you know, we ask them to uh, demonstrate their worth in terms of meeting a certain set of objectives in a very, very sort of narrow way. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm not saying that those things don't matter because I think that they do. I, I think we, you know, we maybe pay more attention than we need to to the wrong things, mm. both in the classroom and in terms of what we picture as constituting excellence in the classroom. And so, Michael, if, if readers just could have one takeaway from reading your book, Teacher, uh, what is it that you hope it would be? I think it would be to have hope. Um, I think I know that sounds a little bit... <laughs> a little bit uh, wishy-washy in some ways, but I, I think in the stories that I tell of children and of my own uh, often um, ill-fated attempts to, to teach well, that, you know, there is a kind of stumbling towards something which, despite all of the things that, that happen beyond my control or the student's control, um, suggest that there's real possibility um, in, in that point of social contact that is a classroom. Um, I still believe in education, just like I really do believe that, um, that you know, a child who, who enters school can, if they work hard and diligently, um, you know, do better and find a path towards a better life. We've taken up a lot of your time today, so I just want to ask you a couple more questions. First, what are a few other books you might recommend to our listeners if they enjoy reading yours or they've enjoyed our conversation today? Well, so the first would be a plug for a really incredible anthology that creative nonfiction slash in fact books just put out. Um, I think they're publishing it through Norton, but it's called What I Didn't Know. Um, true stories of becoming a teacher. I think that it's probably the finest um, set of, of first-person accounts of teaching and all of the different things that teaching can mean in many, many contexts. Um, and so, you know, there's lots and lots of first years covered, and there are all sorts of other. Um, you know, there's a there's a story of, of someone becoming a headmaster of a school in China, where they're supposed to get every student to Yale. <laughs> there are, you know, accounts of teaching um, uh, abroad and domestically and in private schools and in public schools and in all sorts of places all across the country. Um, and I, I found the array of those stories and the, the variety of sort of humanity that was there really um, quite amazing. I, I won't say it's chicken soup for the soul because it, it isn't, the stories themselves are not, they're not sentimentalized. Mm-hmm. Um, they're honest and wry and really, really well-crafted. But I, I think that it's probably the finest book about teaching um, that I have actually read. So um, I would definitely stand by that book. One could skip my small contribution to it. <laughs> but the, the 19, I believe, other chapters in it are, are quite amazing. Um, and then, you know, Mississippi-based, I would have to – I think I would, I would want to plug um, – um, perhaps Jason Ward's book, The Hanging Bridge, which was just recently released, which is about a bridge where um, a massive number of sort of lynchings historically happened in Mississippi that still is there today. 
and the complex circumstances of Mississippi that sort of led to it being there. Um, I just think that it's a very sort of telling account of of the the politics and culture um, of a place and and sort of the ways that the history hangs over those things and informs our understanding of you know of of the segregation that still exists and of the ways that that those events still sort of reverberate today. Um, I had a better understanding of the community that I was in, which was you know the town where the White Citizens Council, the political arm of the Ku Klux Klan, started. Um, having read that book and sort of having a better sense of exactly what <laughs> had happened in the places that I that I encountered and lived in. Lastly, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, what are you working on now, and uh, how can our listeners find out more about your work and your writing? Well, so you can go to uh, MikeCopperman.com, which right now is basically um, a quite full account of of this book itself um, and places that that you know you can find it. <laughs> um, I I'm just now sort of writing a series of essays. Some of them more personal, some of them perhaps being somewhat inspired by this election, which is hard to sort of get off my mind given the number of Latino students that I teach um, and the ways that they have been included or excluded from uh, the discourse of this election. Um, I sometimes refer to Good Men Project, and you can certainly find my work there. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of looking ahead at the next book. I have been working on a book of, of fiction, which is also set in Mississippi. Um, and we'll see what becomes of that <laughs> as I uh, as I keep on with it. Well, Michael, we look forward to reading those as well. I, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I've enjoyed the conversation. Take care. Mm-hmm.